Probably most of you have heard the phrase, I use the phrase, herding cats. You ever heard that? When you're trying to get a group organized or you're trying to cause an event to come together or some kind of game to come together and you're trying to get everybody on the same page at the same time and do whatever it is you're trying to organize and it seems like it's just impossible and it can be so frustrating. You know, sometimes you say, let's all get our calendars out. Or sometimes you set this event up far in advance and you say, y'all sign up. And you can't get people to do it. I mean, sometimes I'm a participant. I don't do it. But the reality is, sometimes just to get something together, to get people together and on the same page, is a very difficult task to do. And if you look at the readings, both from John's Gospel and from the book of Revelation, that's in many ways what Jesus is talking about in the upper room, which John 13 is the earlier part of that. And by the time we get to John 17, which is the culmination when Jesus is praying, he says that they all might be one. And fast forward to Revelation, this picture that you see in heaven When everybody is operating on the same page, doing the same thing at the same time, and everybody seems to know it, and they all seem to do it. It's amazing. They're all of one mind. They're all of one heart. It's even more difficult than just getting everybody to do the same thing. It's not even just the doing. They all have the same mind and the same heart in doing it. That's the amazing thing about the book of Revelation. When we see this picture, this glimpse of heaven. It's what Jesus laid the foundation for even before the upper room when they were being taught how to pray. And he would teach them the Lord's Prayer that would say, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's he saying? See, this is a rabbi's prayer. When we say the prayer, sometimes once a week, sometimes more than once a week, we say it very quickly and we go through it quickly and we don't think of the ramifications, but what Jesus is saying is God's kingdom is such that in heaven, everybody's doing things all on the same page. God's will is being followed perfectly. Which is why we're praying this prayer that as his will is being done in heaven, which is being done perfectly, that we will live into that on earth. It's why Jesus walked with his apostles for three years to model this very thing of walking this walk. One in heart and mind. And so when we see in the book of Revelation, everybody breaks out in song at the same time And they're all singing the same words, and they're all united, not only in action, but in heart and mind and spirit. And nobody's complaining about the music. Imagine that. And it's a wonderful scene. And if you look at Revelation chapter 8, even a more fascinating thing happens. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, 
We read the words, and there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. When does that happen ever? You go to a movie theater, it doesn't happen. It's amazing. Everybody operates according to the will of God. Because everybody is so filled with joy and love. Why? Because finally, this image that's painted, finally the bridegroom and the bride come together. And life is complete. For those of us that are happily married, for those who have been happily married, you know that wedding day, that's what we think about. Unfortunately, the mindset amongst many is the honeymoon's over. But we think about the wedding day and the bride and the bridegroom coming together and the love and the joy of that day. And that's the picture that's being painted here and it's for all eternity. That's what we're being told where there's no pain and there's no sorrow and there's no sickness. Our son Aaron is getting married in July. Our youngest one, our last one. What a great feeling. And Aaron is like so excited. Not that the other two weren't. But Aaron is, he's just such, he smiles all the time anyway. But he's so excited. He's like the reward after the first two. He's just so pleasant. And he's just so pure. And and Morgan, and they're just so excited about this wedding. It's so fun. And Aaron said to me recently, I just hope I can get through it, Dad. You know, which is really sweet. I just hope I can get through it. That's the anticipation and the excitement and the joy of the wedding day. And that's the picture that you see in Revelation. That kind of love and joy that we are going to experience for all eternity. That we're so united to our Lord that we're all on the same page. That we're so full of love that we are united one to another. And that anticipation is what we are to live now. That's what Jesus is saying and praying for in the upper room when he's talking to his apostles. But that very first line, which you may not fully comprehend unless you know the context, and when he went out, who he's talking about is Judas. John is talking about Judas. When Judas went out, the remaining apostles were all the believing apostles. And what Jesus is laying the foundation for is he's saying, this, this is what your life together is meant to be like. This is the goal. And the first thing he talks about is his own relationship with the Father because that's the foundation and that's the model. He talks about how he is seeking to glorify the Father and the Father is seeking to glorify the Son. That that's the goal. See, we are so often seeking our own glorification 
we oftentimes forget about the Lord and living for his glory and lifting up other people. When we are meant to be about the same thing that Jesus is about, which is about glorifying the Father. And the context in which he's talking about, he's talking about his hour of glorification, is the cross and the resurrection. He's not talking about something easy. He's talking about laying down his life, going through the passion and the torture and the pain, all because he loves the Father and all because he loves us. And he's doing it because he wants to glorify the Father for our sake. For our sake. To so be submitted to the Father for our salvation. That's the gift. That he's living into the Father's call on his life and he's so blessed to do so out of love. Love for the Father and love for us. Sacrificial love. That's why the glory. And that's why when Scripture talks about Jesus, it talks about lifting him up. Lifting him up on the one hand on the cross. Dying in our place for our sin, taking the consequences upon himself so that we don't need to because of his love for us, that sacrificial love. Being lifted up that he will eventually be at the right hand of God and be the Lord which the Father is pleased to do. The Father lifts him up. If you look in Philippians chapter 2, there's a hymn in Philippians chapter 2, probably the first hymn of the church, verses 5 through 11. And at the end of it it says, And at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and earth and under the earth should bow because Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. There it is right there. That Jesus is Lord to God's glory. How there's that mutual submission, that mutual glorification because of the depth of love. And Jesus lived exclusively to glorify the Father in everything he did. I only do what I see my Father do. I only say what my Father tells me to say. That's the glorification because he's living for him wholly and completely. Mutual deference. So in that context and in that mindset that we've been singing about at the beginning of the service, Jesus says, so a new commandment I give you, to love one another as I've loved you. In one sense, it's not a new commandment. Because in Leviticus... Chapter 19, love your neighbors yourself, which Jesus said is the second great commandment. The first great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When you so love the Lord and you're so filled with his love, then we're enabled to love our neighbors ourselves. But most people really don't understand it. In the context of his ministry, he told the Good Samaritan parable. They still don't get it. So what does he do? In the upper room, he washes their feet. Their teacher, their Lord, washes their feet. That's one bookend. The other bookend is he will die on the cross for them. The new commandment, love one another as I love you. That looks like sacrificial service 
of the lowest form. It looks like laying down our lives for one another. That's what it looks like. And as much as we might talk about it and think about it and even have the goal in mind, we can't do that apart from his Holy Spirit, no matter how hard we try. Even if we have the model. People love to think about Jesus as a model. We can't do that apart from emptying ourselves and being filled with the Holy Spirit every day and growing constantly in the knowledge and love of him, seeking him in his word so that we understand what that looks like. We can't do this because we run out. We can only do it by the power of his Holy Spirit. That's the context of the new commandment. The context is between washing feet and going to the cross. The context is that Jesus is saying, I will send you the Holy Spirit who's going to enable you to be this way. That's the context as Jesus is talking about this. And he's saying this to a group of apostles that, by the way, is in just a couple of hours going to desert him and the leader is going to deny him. And he's talking about the depth of his love for them, knowing this. That's the kind of God we serve. The God who forgives... That's why he went to the cross. And then at the end of this passage, we see this phrase, so that the world may know. So that the world may know. If we're just like the rest of the world, how is the world going to know? If we don't love sacrificially, how's the world going to know? If we don't forgive as Jesus forgives, how's the world going to know? If we live selfish lives, how's the world going to know? Jesus says, by this the world will know. By by being self-sacrificial. By being forgiving. By washing feet and laying down your life. John, who wrote this gospel, who refers to himself as the beloved disciple, as he writes his gospel. Sixty years later, when he writes his letters to the church, toward the end of his life, after having walked with Jesus for three years in the flesh, and then walked with Jesus 60 years by the power of the Holy Spirit, writes in his first letter, let me read it to you. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his Lord Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. Isn't that amazing? 60 years later, the first step is to believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord, because apart from him, we can't do this. And then he says, love one another as he loved us. Amazing. That he understands that's the context of what it means to walk the walk. The world loves to put its spin on what love looks like. God's idea is different. 
And that's why we come to know him and come to know his word and come to know what love looks like through his word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. John goes on to write, all who obey his commandments abide in him and he abides in them. That's the point. Unless we understand his way of loving, we will seek to do it our way or the world's way, which is often corrupt. And in chapter 4, he writes, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. There it is. God is love. We love to say that. But do we understand what that love looks like? That's why we need to know from his word. We need to know from the cross. That's what love looks like. We need to know from his commands. That's what love looks like. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. There it is. Not that we get love. When we do love of our own way, in our own way, of our own strength, not only is it often tainted by our self-interest, we often run out. We can't sustain it. Only he can, in us, by his spirit, working in us and through us. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. Theologians love to talk about, and some of you have heard this before, maybe many of you haven't, that God has a perfect will and God has a permissive will for our lives. His perfect will was lived into by Jesus Christ. Because Jesus lived without sin. However, the apostles modeled permissive will. They messed up. They messed up right after he told them this stuff. It's amazing how, when we think about it, they walked with Jesus for three years. They saw the miracles, they heard the teaching, they watched his life, and they messed up. Or as I love to say it, they were boneheads. And so why are we surprised when we're boneheads? We're going to mess up, we're going to sin. We're going to fail. And so are those around us. Which is why we need to forgive. Which is why we need to be filled every day. Which is why in this world we end up living in his permissive will. And not his perfect will. Because he knows, much like the apostles who right after this, deserted, denied, lived in fear. That we will mess up. 
But again, that's why Jesus went to the cross, isn't it? Because he died for our sin. The apostles right before this were vying for position, arguing about who's the greatest. They stumbled, they struggled. They failed. John 14, 1. Jesus addressed their troubled hearts. We talked about that during Lent over and over again. We all have troubled hearts at times. And even after the cross and the resurrection, and even after Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out, just read the pages of Scripture. Peter, when he visits Paul, they get into an argument because Peter messes up. He starts living to please others instead of pleasing the Lord. And Paul argued with him, confronted him, yelled at him for being a hypocrite. We're talking about Peter and Paul, the number one apostle and the guy who was the apostle to the Gentiles. And they got into an argument. Why are we surprised about us? But they reconciled. Paul and Mark. Paul, the author of most of the epistles in the New Testament. Mark, the one who wrote the gospel. At one point, read Acts of the Apostles, Mark messes up. He fails. So on the next missionary journey, Barnabas says, well, Mark's coming along, and Paul said, I don't want him. He messed up. I don't want to screw up going along with us on this trip. And then by the time you get to Paul's second letter to, the, to Timothy, Paul writes, bring Mark. He's useful. He's helpful. They had reconciled. That's the church. That's what's meant to happen in families, marriages, and the church. We are not perfect. And we won't be until we see him face to face and are able to follow his will perfectly in heaven. In the meantime, we live in that space of permissive will. We live in that space of grace and forgiveness where we're able to accept his forgiveness for our failures and sin. Where we're able to offer the same to other people because we all have broken lives. We all at times live with self-centeredness. At times people are territorial. But learning to be transformed every day so that we get closer and closer to living his perfect will. For those that we love. For the sake of the church so that we can be one. And for the sake of the world so that we can be a stronger, ever more stronger witness for them. For their sake. 
That's the picture that Jesus paints here. That's what he's trying to say in the upper room as he's preparing them before he dies. That we would no longer live so much for this world and the things and the pettiness and the selfishness of this world. But have our eye on the bridegroom for the wedding day. For his perfect will that one day we'll live into. And until then, to grow in the knowledge and love of him daily in his word. To be filled more and more with the power of his Holy Spirit. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't just mean it for others. We mean it for ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, I pray first for those who may not know you as Savior and Lord. That they would come to that place of understanding the depth of your love. Your sacrificial love for us. Where brokenness is healed and sin is forgiven through your cross and resurrection. And Lord, for all of us, that you would teach us more and more what it means to live into this love by emptying ourselves, by not only finding your forgiveness, but sharing your forgiveness, by not only living in your love, but sharing your love. That as we live in this time of grace, that we will prepare for that time of the wedding feast, united to you, perfectly one, in heart and mind and action, with those that you love around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.